Hello there, welcome to MSG10, uh, Movement, Scenes and Genres, part of the Infrequency Stable Collection, com- compilation, however you want to call it, of podcasts. Um, you can hear all of these at mixcloud.com slash tempfans or at infrequency.co.uk with all the music for free. Um, you might just need to register a username, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you want to listen to the pod version, if you're listening to the pod version right now on your normal pod player, that's great. Um, there'll be a Spotify playlist, but it won't have everything in. We'll try and put links in as much as possible. So I'd recommend going to the aforementioned infrequency.co.uk or uh, mixcloud.com slash tempfans to listen to it as it should be done. Um, also, while you're there, if you wish, you can subscribe to the shows. I say shows. There's this one, there's temporary fandoms, there's a couple of others, which for about three bucks, three euros, three pounds a month really helps us out um, in terms of cost, hosting costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Movement scenes and genres. We get a guest on, um, we talk about a movement scene or a genre, and we, we go through 10 songs. Um, we have had previous guests have included... Uh, ben Zimmer talking about the Hoboken sound, Sharia Moore talking about New York No Wave, Paul Hanley talking about bands he saw while he was in the fall, uh, uh, rafters in Manchester around about 1980. We've had Noise Rock, we've had Riot Girl, and we've got loads of different stuff coming. My guest today has appeared on our sister podcast, Temporary Fandoms, uh, a couple of times, um, talking about Das Racist and Butthole Surfers, I seem to remember. Um, he is a, I'm going to use the British word here, not the American word, a crossword setter uh, whose work has appeared in places like the New York Times, for example. And he's also uh, one of the members of the Boston Typewriter Orchestra. Why was that so hard to say? Uh, it's Brendan Quigley. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Ewan. How are you doing? Um, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, it's not setter, is it? It's not crossword setter. Yeah, well, setter we call you. them constructors, but um, setter is fine. I have a lot of um, English friends, so, uh, you know, we use the terms interchangeably. Uh, and if you want to find out more about Brendan, um, brendanemmettquigley.com? That is correct, yeah. Actually, Brendan Quigley I, goes I to me, too, but... Oh, oh, well done. I, I, do like, I do like a person who does, who does a proper sort of redirect. Well done. <laughs> um, okay. So we're going to get started straight away and we'll veer off at some points, et cetera, et cetera. So Brendan, um, what are we doing today? Well, uh, as you had alluded to in the introduction, um, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, and I um, grew up there uh, and there was this very influential radio station uh, for a while called WBCN. Uh, They were uh, a free form uh, commercial rock radio station started in like the sixties and they slowly became sort of an institution, uh, with, uh, you know, creating, uh, they they were political, but they also like broke a lot of new bands and, and whatnot. Uh, and so 
they had this uh, annual event called the BCN Rumble, wherein they invited 24 local bands to in in this big battle of the bands thing, and it's it, it was somewhat of an institution uh, for a while. Uh, a vast majority of the acts who have competed and or won went on to basically do nothing, but there were a, <laughs> a few uh, interesting exceptions. And so I guess we're going to just sort of talk about, um, you know, the, uh, what it was, you know, what this whole thing was about. Uh, yeah, that's it. I, yeah. <laughs> um, it's I mean, sort of I mean, silly. I say, but... as, as, as someone who, who grew up in England, um, that sounds like the most American thing ever. Yes, um, some of my friends went to local battles of the bands where like three people would play the Lord Raglan in Wolverhampton. Um, but the fact that, number one, commercial rock radio station. Number two, it's four letters. That's the most American thing I could probably... Welcome to WNST. That's such an American thing that I would know from my youth. Number three, as a big commercial rock radio battle of the bands... I'm coming into this kind of expecting Wild Stallions, um, Bill and Ted's, um, that kind of thing I used to watch when I was growing up, a very big American sort of local thing. So I'm quite excited about this. Um, you said it was an institution not only as um, a competition, but also as a, a radio station. Yeah, I mean, BCN um, just- was was hugely influential. Um, uh- one of their earliest DJs was Peter Wolf, who went on to be the front guy for the Jay Giles band. Uh, BCN would routinely get involved in local politics. They'd, do, they'd fund uh, voter registration. They fought against the Vietnam War. Uh, but they were oh, wow. also incredibly uh, uh, avant-garde. They didn't have a, 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 a playlist for a very long time. Um, they broke local bands like the Cars, uh, but then they also gave a platform for uh, national acts that hadn't been broken anywhere in the U.S. Like uh, uh, U2 is probably their biggest example. They were uh, routinely playing their import record middle of the day. Um, so it, it was, um, yeah, it, it, it was a, it was an interesting radio station to grow up with. Uh, uh, it was always on in our car radio. So to me, it just sort of seemed so th- like was this. So I'm trying to piece together different things that the various um, guests have told me and and, and different parts. Was this left of the dial where the college stuff would be? Absolutely not. It was 104.1, which is smack dab in the middle. Um, College radio stations tend to be at the lower frequencies in the 90s. This was like right in the middle of it. So, And it was a very powerful uh, uh, antenna too. So it it reached uh, close... I'm, I'm at least like the Worcester area, which is maybe about an hour away from Boston. So um, pretty, pretty, it, it cast a wide net. So did you have a, did you, I mean, I mean, I grew up in, like, as, as you know, I grew up in England and, and most of my formative radio listening years, I'd say, let's say late eighties, early nineties, we had, we had the BBC, one, two, three, four, and we had local radio. Local radio was commercial, it was pop, and it was very commercial. It didn't get political. We had local BBC stations that were basically traffic news. And we had maybe Radio 1, which would have John Peel would be, I'd say, the closest to your entire station who would come on in the evenings and play and break eclectic music, indie music, was, was, was loved and adored by all. We didn't have this massive choice 
of, oh, I'm in Boston, I'm listening to this. I'm in LA, I'm listening to KTLA5. I'm in New York, I'm listening to this, these different stations. We had one and one voice. So this whole thing of there being a, an alternative music voice, but a local alternative music voice didn't exist. From many kids growing up in England. Yeah, and, and and they're definitely like dinosaurs now. Uh the BCN folded in 2009, uh, but before then it had been uh, bought up by uh central broadcasting systems, one of the uh big broadcasters, Infinity, I think is the uh one of their sub companies. So yeah. it became much more um streamlined over time. Yeah. Um but it, you know, like growing up, it would be not uncommon to hear like um, a B side from the Police, and then like a Bob Marley song, which, and then like a local band, and this would be at like lunchtime, and and you would be like, wow, this this seems it seemed like when I went to college radio, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a DJ there, but when I listened to it, it reminded me of like, oh yeah, this is what like BCN used to do growing up. And, yeah. and you know, there was irreverent DJs on it. Like, in fact, uh, one of the first, one of the original uh, VJs on MTV, JJ Jackson got his start at BCN. So uh, it's a, uh, it was a, it was a, a wild, it was the wild west basically. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that in a bit later. I want to talk about, finding out about new music when you were younger, but we'll probably do that a bit later in the show. Um, it's probably a good time to talk about the competition and the first choice of music for the, well, for the show. So, so this competition ran from, from when? So there had been uh, a battles of bands uh, in Boston prior to the Rumble, but the first official one started in 1979. And it was held at this uh, basically shithole just in the shadow of Fenway Park called the Rathskeller, uh, shortened for uh, shortened to the Rat. And um, that was the first time that BCN uh, sort of uh, put their stamp on it. Uh, the competition was there; it was spread out over the course of a month. There would be six nights of four bands uh, who were invited by the station. You couldn't like. Uh, you know, apply for this. This had this was a curated list of participants, uh, and then they would be critiqued on various, you know, like all other battles of the bands. Like, how was the material? Uh, how, you know, performance was. Did they put on a good show? You know, there would be other. Uh, you, you, and was it a physical? Was it a physical night? Yeah, absolutely. Like what? Okay. Like I said, it would, there'd be like six nights of preliminary nights, four bands each, one winner from each one. And then the next weekend, uh, the first three would be the semifinals, and then the second three would be the second semifinals. Winner from each one of those. Week after that, then there would be a final. Uh, usually, they'd have some touring band be the headliner, and then um, that would be it. So, it's, so, and this is when I'm going to use my uh, my. Uh, this one's for the American audiences. So it's kind of like a March Madness. Yeah, I would say like a, it's definitely like March Madness. Uh, my wife's English, so she likened it to the World Cup. Um, so <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, I mean, it was, it was fun. It, it was. It's an opportunity. Like, look, Battle of the Bands are basically they're kind of silly. 
right? And and the notion of having twenty four worthwhile bands any given year is it seems a little, um, well, generous. Let's be honest. But the idea, uh, but this was an opportunity each year where everyone for ill or for worse, like kind of paid attention to see like what was happening in town, you know, and it wasn't just local bands too. That's the thing. Like, uh, in 1987, there actually, they, they started a specific dedicated radio show on BCN called Boston emissions. And that is sort of a misnomer. It was basically like any, uh, there would be two hours of local music and it was necessarily out of Boston. It was like new England. So, Bands from New Hampshire, Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, that sort of thing. Okay, okay, okay. So who 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 is the first choice? I mean, when you sent through the list, was this the first winner, first year? Yeah. So I figured since we might, you know, might as well start at the top. The uh, the first uh, Rumble winners is a group called the Neighborhoods, and they're. an institution. Uh, Dave Minahan is the uh, lead singer guitarist. It's very, this is a very Boston band in the sense that we love our power pop. <laughs> there is an awful lot of power pop that comes out of this city. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would argue that uh, the neighborhoods do it the best. They beat a group called La Pest, uh, who was a punk band. Um, for my money, if, if we're going uh, apples to oranges, I would, I would pick La Pest, but, um, you know, and this was, the, this winner, was the winner gets you the said, spoils, right? So we have to go with the, this was 79, the neighborhoods, right? This was 1979. This was, this was 79. Yeah. So this was punk. This was punk era and a punk band turned up and didn't win. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I mean, a lot of the, uh, one thing I didn't say is like, uh, the judges were a, a mishmash of like local people working in the scene like bookers of clubs um uh reviewers for uh zines or uh major newspapers uh if there was any like uh record executives like small indie labels and stuff but by the finals it was entirely industry people i think there might have been like one or two maybe the station director for bcn did it but for the most part it was like people who weren't in the scene so I think a lot of the times, sometimes the winner would be who had the most commercial juice, right? So let's listen to that uh, first song. It's the, like I said, it's the Neighborhoods and the song is called Prettiest Girl. And, you know, you can, you can hear for yourself. This is, this is probably a hit in an alternate universe. Um, if you just heard a bit of music, then congratulations, you're listening to our version on, on Mixcloud or on our website. If, if you just heard a jingle that went, um, then you're listening to the podcast version. I would strongly recommend you flip to the other one just because it, it's better. I'm not going to say that again. Um, also, I discovered today when I was trying to Google the neighborhoods that as an English person, um, Google does not like me Googling with an O-U-R and the band The Neighborhood come up all the time. And it was only when I realized that maybe it had never been spelt in the British way that you suddenly started to find stuff. Um, Before we move on, as you know, dear listener, I often move on a little bit too quickly. Um, Brendan, you said you wanted to just drop back on that one a little bit before we stepped up forward. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like I said before the break, um, or before we played it, rather, the, you know, classic power pop, 
um, really has a melody that you're going to have stuck in your head forever. And when I, when I listen to it, I go, man, the Pixies, you guys are so busted. I mean, that song to me is like gigantic and it's the same chord progression for Debaser. And it's like, uh, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty ballsy. Let's put it that way. Cause like I said, while they may not be like the world's most popular bands, I mean, they, they went on to, they went on to some, uh, you know, somewhat of a success in, in, um, the States, but, uh, to rip off someone from your own town is, uh, is pretty amazing. So. I, it's, 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 it's quite ballsy yeah, as well. It's, absolutely. A, it's that thing. I mean, Ed, Ed Sheeran's been taken to court more recently for, 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 for less than that. Um, don't sue them. Okay. Don't sue anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've touched upon this in, in an episode of Temporary Fandoms, but I just wanted to go back to the idea of young Brendan, 17, 18, 19, maybe 15, 16, 17, um, would be listening to and uh, being introduced to loads of new music um, by this local radio station. Um, in in the UK, a lot of us at that age, we were going to local alternative nightclubs where they'd play Pixies, Nirvana, Dinosaur Jr. Uh, then later on, yeah, things like The Cure and The Smiths, etc. Um, even though the legal drinking age was eighteen, a lot of us got in at sixteen, seventeen, and then we sort of by the by twenty one, we'd had years of this. We discovered a lot of our alternative music through this. How did you do it? in a country that is so strict on the legal drinking age of 21? Uh, well, I should probably point out I was born in 74. So as a five-year-old, I, I did not know about the rumble in its, at all. However, uh, to answer your question, uh, I mean, that also means I grew up with MTV. And that was like a force in this country. That was the most successful radio station bar none that was on all the time in our house i mean my family we all love music so you know we were like always listening trying to hear what the new stuff was mtv was a force in the, in the house there was another local radio uh, excuse me there was another local video channel called v66 that tried to compete with mtv and they were even better because they not only played uh MTV's playlist, which comparative to most radio stations in the country was pretty progressive. This took it another level. Um, V66 was like routinely playing uh, like REM videos and run DMC in the middle of the day. Uh, so when like MTV finally made the the jump to say like, oh, hey, check out this new band. I was like, yeah, but I've been listening to them for three years. So um so for me, that was like a huge force. And then as I got older, I discovered more of the, like you said, middle middle of the night, we're going to break new bands, uh, radio shows, uh, but specifically MTV again, 120 minutes. That was that was instrumental for me growing up, like staying up till midnight on a on a Sunday night, and then trying to see how much of this I could watch, and it would be you know. <laughs> There'd be like some amazing stuff that, you know, that's timeless. And then there'd be like, you know, pop will eat itself and, uh, you know, the soup dragons oh, or something. We're, we're not, we are never going to diss 
populate yourself on uh, any I one know. of my I'm shows. I'm just teasing. I'm playing. <laughs> I'm playing. But randomly, and this might sound like the most English thing to you, once I was with a bunch of mates, uh, circa 92, I don't know, over in Stourbridge, which was where the poppies were from. It was near where I, was, I grew up. And we were just drinking in a field, playing a bit of pickup cricket. And um, I was in the outfield. I was a fielder. I never really played cricket. I, was, I had a can of red stripe in my hand or something. And um, Clint Poppy and one of his mates wandered over and asked if he could join in. And um, I caught Clint Poppy out at cricket when I was a teenager on a random sunny afternoon. That might be the most English thing I can say today. I got nothing. <laughs> That's pretty cool, okay, though. Okay. I'll say that. I mean, like, <laughs> the only thing I got is, like, I remember, like, going to get, like, a frozen pizza in, like, the middle of the night with, like, my roommate, like, years and years ago and seeing, like, a very inebriated Peter Wolf, like, walking through the uh, store using the push cart as, like, almost like a walker. He couldn't stand up. And uh, <laughs> the two of us, like, resisting the temptation to sort of give him a hard time but as we were leaving mike started singing centerfold at the top of his lungs on the way out <laughs> but uh i don't think that beats your story but uh okay so i want to talk about um we talked about neighborhoods and you said they got into some form of middling success around america but they never really broke that's correct did any did anybody ever become massive well Far and away, the biggest winner for the BCN Rumble was 1983's winner, uh, a group called Till Tuesday, uh, who uh, went on to, you know, has that new wave uh, staple, Voices Carry. And um, and this is and this was Amy Mann. Yeah, yeah, Amy okay, Mann just, is the singer, and she's still going. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, th that is like they tower over everyone who ever competed in this in terms of success. I mean, did the Rumble have anything to do with it? Maybe, but uh, yeah, they are like by every metric, the most successful act. I, I mean, I was doing some cursory research earlier on. They formed, they had the Rumble within, within half a year and then they instantly broke. Pretty much, yeah. I think they were, they were already like veterans. So I think this was like a very quick let's pool all our talents and kind of hit it hard, hit it quick. I, and, and so how long, I mean, I didn't, I don't know that much about till Tuesday. I know a few songs. I know a lot. I know most of Amy Mann's solo stuff. How long did till Tuesday last? They actually had a seven year career. Uh, I mean, in the States, to be honest, I don't think many people know them outside of voices carry that. I mean, when we were talking earlier, MTV, that was like wallpaper. That video was on all the time. In fact, I think they won a, yeah, they did. Actually, they won the Video Music Award Best New Artist for that. So go figure. You know, they just. Um, was, was this, which was the video? Was this the video where she's being talked to, persuaded by her rich boyfriend um, to have a rich, nice life? And at the end, a gig, she sort of takes her hat off and she's got spiky hair. Was this this one? That's the one, man. That's okay. it. I mean, like, That's the one I know. I'm telling you. That's the one I know. <laughs> there's probably only like a few Amy Mann videos. There was the the one she did with Rush and then in a time standstill. And then, I don't know, maybe she did some other ones. But that's, you know, everyone remembers her as having that, you know, very new wave haircut. The blonde spiky haircut. Right. So um, 
I assume we're going to listen to Voices Carry. Well, actually, that wasn't a... Uh, they didn't have that song yet. They hadn't been written. So instead, we're going to go with uh, what would have been their local hit at the time, Love in a Vacuum. They later re-recorded it for the uh, uh, their major label record. But, uh, but yeah, so there it is. Love in a Vacuum. Crank it. So... Amy Mann became uh, a, a superstar uh, uh, later on, um, did the music, the soundtrack for the, the movie Magnolia, um, all because of this battle of the bands, this, this rumble. Um, so I assume that once Till Tuesday broke through, this was like a, a floodgate opening of bands just hitting success after success. Uh, actually, no, it was quite the opposite. I mean, we should take a, let's just take a step back. Um, this was like one of, this was like a industry thing, an industry event in town. And certainly bands who played it went on to various forms of success. Some got major labels, some got independent labels, uh, but a vast majority of them, including winners, it was, it, it became a regional only thing. And uh, so a lot, of, so there was like two philosophies. There was one, you just didn't want to be the winner because you had a better chance of like getting further if you didn't win. And then the other one was that Amy Mann until Tuesday gave you like put a curse on the winner. Okay. So, so right. So there's two things there. There's becoming more successful and, and, and failing and there's the curse. Let's talk about the curse for, for this segment. And we'll come back to the idea of second place wins. Yes. A bit later. What's this? I mean, how bad was this curse? I mean, well, I mean, it's a bit unfair to say it was a curse because basically, like, Till Tuesday won the lottery, right? Like, I think to to make it in any capacity, a lot of cards have to flip in your direction. And I think they had a lot of poppy songs. They had a great front person, an Amy Mann. And I think having this BCN rumble win behind him gave him a sort of validity. Right. And so that was enough to then bring him to a next level. And then they had the goods to then push it to the, to, to a much higher success. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily to say it's a curse is, is, is a bit disingenuous because I think there were other forces at stake, but if you look at like the list of other winners, I mean, it, these, it's a, it's a parade of nobodies that you, that nobody has ever, um, gone on to, to hear from. Uh, we have the schemers down Avenue, childhood heretics, the bags, slaughter shack, Seca, big Catholic guilt, cobalt 60, the dirt merchants. These are all winners. Okay, and you have heard of re- none of these bands. So- so, so, so in the last year or so, there's been a lot of posts on social media. This came to my head as you were doing that of like um, festival lineups as generated by artificial intelligence, like made up band names. As what you have just done is listed a bunch of names that, as far as I know, they could have been made by an AI. Yeah, or they could be um, on they, like the seventeenth <laughs> stage of Lollapalooza. I mean, it's just you know, it's. But so I think, I think the thing like t- so. Till Tuesday, they're definitely a first or second tier Hall of Fame band from Boston. 
on the strength of voices carry like so few boston bands have any songs of that staying power um uh, and so i think to compare all those winners to you know a, a lightning in a bottle moment is is disingenuous and so it, it it's a it's a curse basically to say like oh i have to now <laughs> because i've won this rumble now i have to be as successful as till tuesday uh, so so is that the curse it's not the curse that winning begets failure the curse is the expectations people went into for a while because this other band had had made 100% it. that's exactly what it is it's not about you know i mean in boston we're very uh, we love our sports right and we love uh curses and that sort of thing as excuses for why certain things didn't work you know there was an 86 year drought for the Red Sox between World Series, and they blamed it on a curse that uh, Babe Ruth supposedly put on the team, just as he was being sold to the arch rival New York Yankees. I mean, that's outrageous on the face of it. There's so many other like realistic reasons why they weren't competing. I mean, they had an opportunity to sign uh, Jackie Robinson, but they didn't. If they had done that, then history is completely different. Uh, as a as a fan of the English football team Sheffield Wednesday, um, I've, I've had my, my I've used my excuse my bad excuses over the years. Oh, we could have signed Eric Cantona, but we chose not to. Essentially, sometimes you just have to accept that the team you support sucks. Yeah, I mean that's it. So, but anyway, so I think I think there's a sort of playfulness about it to say that it you know that there's a curse associated with it in the sense. I mean, because. I don't think Amy Mann gave a flying shit about any of these bands to like, like put a voodoo on them. I mean, and if she does, then that's like incredibly infantile on her end. So did anybody ever come close um, over the years? I mean, we're not, even if we're not going chronologically, who, who came the closest to being massive that also won? So in 2003, there was a duo called the Dresden Dolls and they just barnstormed through this competition. It was like pretty much over from the jump. And this is a man, this is a man, this is a man, Palmer, Palmer and right? Brian Viglione. Yeah. They, uh, you know, and it's funny because like by that point, BCN had, it was sort of slowly becoming less, uh, it became less and less of a sort of a free form radio station. Um, and more of along the lines of sort of the infinity broadcasting, which is like homogenization of, of uh, rock radio. So to have like a, a goth cabaret band win in 2003, like basically spat in the face of like everything else they were playing. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but there was no stopping them. They were uh, a, uh, a juggernaut. And, you know, and when they went on to, you know, fairly modest success, I think people said that they had broken the curse. We talked about the, 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 the supposed curse, or at least the, the heavy wears the crown that, that, that can happen with, with some of the winners over the years. Um, when you sent me through the original list and I started to have a bit of research and looked at bands who didn't win, and weirdly, strangely, um, within whew, about three minutes of noticing the next piece of information, somebody posted um, that it was the anniversary of um, It's a Shame About Ray. 
because the Lemonheads didn't win, right? I mean, the Lemonheads who went on to be one of the seminal seminal indie bands of the early 90s, right? Oh, absolutely. I think they did win their original night, but they got knocked out in the semis. Classic. I mean, as 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 an going back to sport, as an England football fan, getting knocked out in the in the subsequent rounds is something I'm used to. Um, so, were there any other bands? I mean, that have been let's say overlooked or, or didn't make it or got to the or, or were laughed off stage. I mean, who 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 else is there? Yeah. So the BCN Rumble, it wasn't necessarily like the best um, uh, discoverer of of talent. I mean, in the first year alone. Uh, they had the I- iconic Mission of Burma, who lost to a pretty pedestrian new wave band called The Rings. Um, they were just like people just didn't know what to do with them, and and now they're like I would say you know again a first or second tier Hall of Fame band from Boston. So um, yeah, so let so 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 missions so missions of Burma were in the 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 the, the first year that the neighborhoods yes. won, but. They couldn't even win oh, their wow, first okay. night. They were like, eh, what do we do with this? Why do you think it is? Do you think it's because band that maybe the judges just go, uh, I don't know what to do with this, or because the judges, because it's it's something that's different from what everyone else is doing and they don't know how to to place it? I mean, if we've if we've got the Lemonheads failing and we've got Mich- uh, Missions of Burma, Mission of Burma failing, um, is it just the fact that these, as you said earlier on, these these sort of um, battles of the bands are, they're not a judge of talent? Yeah, I mean, they are, but they aren't. It's like, it's it, you have to make a decision on the fly. Like, okay, yeah, this this speaks more to me than this. And, you know, certain material that, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that the Lemonheads, they were on Tang at that point. So that was probably a bit more punky. And they hadn't quite, Evan hadn't gone into the sort of more intelligent pop music phase I think, uh, and I'm sure Mission of Burma went over everyone's head as as being abstract. And because I, I think it's they're the sort of band you need to sort of live with, so you can't just sort of like make a on the fly decision. So I think acts like that tend to, you know, flop. I guess I hate to say it, but it's but like, true. You know, but, well, yeah, but but that's it. Some some bands do need to be growers. I guess, you know, some of my favorite bands, I, I'll be honest, sometimes the first time I hear a new album from them, I'm like, yeah, give me a couple of listens. And then by then it sort of comes Absolutely. in. Um, some of my favorite records, you know, the first time you hear it, you're like, what is this? And then like by the third time, you're like, I'm going to need like an entire box set of this. I, I, I will say Mission of Burma, I mean, Mission of Burma, of Burma become incredibly influential i mean they are cited as one of the major major influences for graham coxon from blur 100 um, percent, yeah particularly particularly in that sort of period where, where where there was a thing about blur albums somebody said once that a blur album sounds like graham looks so late 90s graham started to look a bit sort of american indie in indie college rock he was listening to a lot of mission and burner of, of burma oh, my god i can't say it and then suddenly song two and heavy guitars and he was sort of let loose um all right probably as good a time as any um week segue time mission of burma i said it right i said it right yes okay so 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 that was one band who 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 didn't even get out the first round and um 
ended up becoming major players, major influences, uh, a major band in, in, in their scene over the years. And we've also in their had scene? I mean, eclectic- I, I'd say like nationwide. I mean, if you read a phenomenal book called Our Band Could Be Your Life, there's a chapter dedicated to them. And uh, it's, I wholeheartedly recommend oh, is that the, it. Is that the Azeroth? I, th- the I think Michael Azeroth did it. Yeah. And it was yeah. uh, a, just a wonderful read. Little chapter length histories of, of influential 80s independent bands like Black Flag, Minor Threat, uh, Butthole Surfers, uh, Submission of Burma's in there, Dinosaur Jr.'s in there. It's, it's, a, it's a real treat. Uh, thumbs way up. Thumb. If you need something to read for the summer, you can read that. Um, I think that's one of the things is I, I got in, so I'm probably, let's say 1990, 1991, I was getting massively into Dinosaur Jr. I knew a bit of Black Flag, although by that point it was becoming Rollins solo, solo stuff, um, butthole surfers, etc. But also I was knee deep in my local indie music scene as well. So the and American bands turning up in the UK either had to be massive or John Peel played it. Or you didn't have a chance, right? Yeah, it was. So, so I mean, it was the same like, way with like us, I, with you guys. I mean, like for people who like did read about the music scene, like we knew about Pulp, but a band like Shed Seven, like forget it. No one's going to touch that. So um, that's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, but no, absolutely. I mean, but, um, but particularly that we go back to then, we had. I mean, I don't know what the music press was like in the US at the time. Obviously, there's the big hitters like Rolling Stone. I mean, we had Enemy, we had Melody Maker, and before that, we had Sounds, which were, if you think about it, weekly, national, totally devoted to music and mainly alternative music, newspapers, not even magazines, newspapers that all sold well. Yeah, we had Rolling Stone and Spin. Those were two like major glossy zines. Spin was a little more left of the dial. Um, whereas Rolling Stone was more of the institution. Um, if you got your band in one of those, then, you know, that was, that was a real accomplishment. Um, so who have we got next? What's, what's next? So going back to the rumble being a poor judge of talent, uh, in 1992, uh, there were two very, very successful nationwide bands that came out of Boston that competed in the rumble. And they couldn't win either night that they competed in. And when I say either night, somewhere along the line, they realized like, oh, we could probably make more money and make this more of a, a of an event if we had and keep people interested in it. Is we'll take the winners of the six original nights, but we'll we'll add wild cards. We'll add the band that came closest to winning but didn't win outright. And we'll throw them into the mix as well so that we'll fill out the bill a bit more. We'll get more people in there to buy drinks and it'll be more of an event. And so in 1992, there were two acts that couldn't win their opening night. Uh, One of them was called Letters to Cleo, who uh, became extremely big when they had a song in the uh, teen drama Melrose Place. And that song was everywhere that summer it was everywhere they were a very big act uh, so they didn't win their opening night and then they got wild carded in and they lost that night as well and then this other band which we're going to listen to who i think is a little more uh uh 
Well, I mean, they're both they're both good bands, but Morphine is the other one. I think they're a little more interesting. Uh, and Mark Sandman, who was the singer and slide bass player, played slide bass with only two strings, I believe. Um, he died, unfortunately, while touring over in Italy. But they named a square in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right outside his favorite pub after him. So uh, a, a real local institution. And um, let's uh, let's listen to some morphine. So you sent me through the list of songs and my eyes immediately hung on one of the band names. And as a kid who grew up passionate and in love with the work of Douglas Adams, seeing the words, the campaign for real time just made me go, Ooh, 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 wait, is that, is that, is that a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference? Um, Brendan, Brendan, what's going yeah, well, on? Well, you know, damn well, it is a, a, a uh, Hitchhiker's <laughs> reference. Yeah, that was, uh, that was my band. Uh, I, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop the presses, stop the presses. Wait, when were you in? This we haven't talked about you being in this so far. What what year were you in? Uh, well, we won in uh, two thousand six. You you yeah, won. We won. We won so the we've rumble. Mentioned, we've mentioned morphine. We've mentioned mission of Burma. We mentioned lemonheads. Some of them didn't even get out their first day. <laughs> I know. Well, you well, we won. did. I know. We got that's like the one thing I can say I did better than uh, you know Clint Conley and the boys of uh, mission of Burma. <laughs> so, um, okay, so. So what's it, so let's do the, the, the other side of it. What was it actually like to be in? Um, was it sort of a, a turn up on stage? You've got a sound check. Was there no sound check? Was it, was it sweaty and repetitive? Was it five people in the audience and six A&R men? Talk us through the actual physical experience of it. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, we were asked to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, at the time we were, we had already kind of got, a little bit of an establishment uh, and we were looking to uh, we were concentrating heavily on England, like uh, Zane Lowe and Rob DeBank had already been playing us. So we kind of had our eye overseas, but, and we weren't necessarily ignoring the town or where we were from, but we were like, okay, well, we'll do this. Um, and um, no, I mean, it was, the the nights were pretty were pretty packed. It was uh, by that point it was in a club called the Middle East, and uh, that's another like local institution, uh, still chugging along. Somehow okay. made it through in that case, COVID. I, what one thing one thing I'd like to do? Sorry, just jumping in. One thing I'd like to do when there is when there is a specific venue, particularly one even people listening to this who have never been to Boston in their life, I want you to describe the venue to me. Where's the toilet? Where's the clothes room? <laughs> is it down some steps? Is there somewhere you bang your head? Was the floor sticky with smoke, sticky and, and smoke filled? Let, I want to feel this. Okay, well, do you want me to tell you about the rat? Or not? Oh, oh, with, yeah, yeah. D- 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 bring it on. Okay. <laughs> Let's, so the rat was the first venue, and that was the, the older, punkier one. So what was, what was that like? You walk in the door, and what's where? Well, I only went once uh, because, again, like I was so uh, young that I wasn't able to go to any of these clubs. Uh, but I remember you went down a stairwell. The toilet looked like, well, nothing you want to be anywhere near. There was a club uh, a stage <laughs> way in the back. It probably fit 
I'm going to say like 200 people. Um, the thing looked very dilapidated. And uh, to be fair, this was like probably months before the thing was condemned and knocked down and made into like luxury <laughs> condos. But uh, uh, it was a it was a, a glorified toilet bowl. Um, and and then that was replaced. That was replaced by okay. by the time you played. Oh well, it had moved to various other venues, uh, like the Paradise, which is a mid-sized club, uh, in, right on the campus of uh, BU. And uh, there was like a front room, maybe held sort of had cabaret seating, uh, maybe held like uh, 150, 200 people. But in the back room, there was a massive stage. That's about 600 people, um, touring acts come through there. Um, it had, a, 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 it had a pole, a support pole. I, I mean, I'm talking about it like this doesn't exist anymore. It still does. There's a support pole holding the whole building up directly in front of the stage. So you either stood to the left of it or you stood to the right of it. If you were standing behind it, you couldn't see anything. And it was the free, I think the free butt may be in Brighton. I went to see uh, Jeffrey Lewis there once, and also a previous guest on this show, uh, Chris T.T., and there is a pole. There's a big metal square pole about a meter away from the stage, right in the middle, and you just look at it and go, that's, this isn't right. (laughs) It really isn't. Like, nobody bothered to, like, look at the, like, the layout when they put the whole thing together. But now, the Middle East, so that's a, it's a restaurant. And there's uh, there's three restaurants on the main street. There's uh, well the, <laughs> the the middle bit's called Zuzu. It's basically like the slightly upper scale version of the two that flank it, uh, and it, it's basically a uh, you know family Middle Eastern restaurant. Get kebabs, lasanat, that sort of thing. Uh, and if you walk through. One of the clubs, excuse me, if you walk through one of the restaurants past the bar, there's like a little um, shoebox sized club in the back. And that was the Middle East upstairs. Uh, and there, you've hit about 200 people on there. And then if you walked through the other side restaurant, there was the Middle East downstairs, which went down this like basically a fire trap. Uh, you went straight down this, this <laughs> stairwell. And then there'd be 600 people there. It was like a former bowling alley, but then they converted it to like a, a rock club and the stage was way in the back. And like I said, it was a fire trap because it was, I, I, there is a back door where the bands load in and out, but the, the there's just one for everyone else to get out of. So miraculously, they've so there's, never- there's one way like, in, one, one way in, one way out. And if you open that fire escape, oxygen suddenly zooms in, pushes straight yeah. into the 600 people who I imagine were, were, were probably- a, had smoking been banned by this point in America? Um, in 06, yeah, no, definitely. It was like in the late, I think it was like the late 90s. I can't remember. What was it like playing? What was it like playing the show? Well, I mean, we, like I said, we were already like thinking, we were kind of thinking past the sale anyway. So for us, this was just like, hey, an opportunity to raise a profile, maybe get some money and then, you know, go on to the next thing. And so we treated it like every, I mean, we treated every show basically like a battle of the bands. We were going to murder you every night to the best (laughs) of our abilities. And so, you know, that was our uh, thinking for that. Um, And, you know, it it, it was a good experience. Uh, We 
uh, yeah, I mean, I, how can you how can you I'm turn so- down winning something like that? I mean, and say like, oh, this this is a bad I, I experience. Mean- you know, it was a good experience. I mean, it wasn't the only experience I think of the band, but you know, we. Uh, I mean, to put things in perspective, this is, it's not like all glamorous. Like when Till Tuesday won, they got $2,000 for winning, but that was $1983. So if we were to do the conversion, that's about $5,800 in today's money. Oh, oh, wow. Uh, So, which is, you know, a pretty sizable paycheck. Um, When we won, it was only $3,000 and that translates to like $4,300. In today's, which again, I mean, not an insignificant right. it's nothing to amount be of money, yeah. but you know, what you could see like <laughs> they they were putting less and less money into it by the time it came to us. And so, by by this point, is what it's two thousand and six, yeah. and so I mean, the music industry has shifted online by this point, right? Well, yeah, and that was that was another thing too, like the act. So we were all most of us, most of the main writers for the campaign were veterans who'd been in other bands before. Uh, and then there were some other, we, the other, the rest of them were much younger than us, maybe about five or six years younger. And you could see like an age gap difference. Like the people I was in the older side, we were like, Oh, well we need to sell CDs. We need to be on the radio. You know, th- this stuff means something to sort of build a portfolio to try to, you know, sell the band to whomever. And everyone who was on the younger side of it is like, who listens to the radio? Who buys CDs? You know, everything's for free on the internet. So it was, it was a weird. All right, gra- all right, granddad with your tapes. I know. I, I mean, and now, now what do all the hipsters do? They buy tapes. It's ridiculous. It's like everything old is new again. So uh, I'm looking forward to like, you know, the Napster re- revival. Like, oh man. <laughs> but, I'm looking forward to Metallica suing yeah, people again. I mean, I'll, that'd be. <laughs> Amazing, but so it, it it was a weird time, and and I think like the rumble had certainly, I mean it it still had some juice. Don't get me wrong, like we 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 met a lot of people, and it, and it allowed for other opportunities down the line. But in terms of like breaking a band, I think, I mean like BCN couldn't even break the Dresden Dolls, even though like the the Dresden Dolls succeeded in sort of in spite of winning this rumble because they like toured their ass off and they had a gimmick and they had songs and they had a lot of, and, and Amanda Palmer still has a lot of excited fans who will buy everything that she does. And so, um, we did not have that, unfortunately, you know, like we had a lot of people who were very into us, but we didn't have the numbers and, and that's what it boils down to. So, uh, so it was a good experience, uh, but you know, it was a experience in the in the big, you know, the the brick wall that was the campaign for real time. So I'm assuming. I mean, we've talked about some bands that sort of made it big around the U.S. Some some have broke it. Some broke it. Broke it. Some broke uh, semi globally. Um, I'm assuming there was an awful lot of the bands in this that basically became stalwarts of the New England or Massachusetts or, or Boston scenes, right? I mean, was there any? I mean, I'm assuming that just because you play in here and don't get a massive record deal, you're still you're still playing in Boston for the next five, ten years. Oh, definitely, absolutely. I mean, 
I remember like when we were doing it, someone said, if you could make it in three cities, then people will start talking to you. So I think winning the Rumble is basically an easy way to go. All right, Boston, tick that mark off. We got that one done. So maybe now we can try to make something happen in New York. And huh. So is that, so is that just based on what you've just said, is that, I think, a major difference between, for me, when, a, when an American band has made it to the shores of the UK, they're relatively fully formed or they were relatively fully formed. The music press in the UK could literally find a band playing in London, shove them on the front page the next day, and they'd be the next big thing, and then maybe they'd disappear. A lot of American bands seem to do the cities. Like you said, they've, they've, they've done LA. They've got a following in Boston. They're, they're down in Athens, Georgia. And so by the time they break, at least globally, they've been playing a year. Yeah, and, and that, is, that, is tri- that is true. When... Um- like one of our cities that we were trying to break was London for that very same reason that you were talking about. You know, it's, you can, if you, if you catch fire, you can become, you know, a enemy darling very quickly. Um, so, um, but yeah, you, the thing with, you know, the U S is so big, there's 350 million of us that I think in order to sort of like break through the noise, you, you had to, be better than everybody else. And so like in certain cities like LA or New York, where the competition is so much greater, like, yeah, there is obviously going to be some nepotism and whatnot to, to get to a point. And certainly people network their way to careers, but in order to be the best in these cities, you have to be better than like, I, someone said there was like 3000 bands in Boston, roughly around the time we were doing it. It's probably like 30,000 in New York City. So in order to like be good, you have to be better than a very staggering number of acts. Now, granted, a lot of these bands are just like cover bands, you know, playing for the weekend. Uh, you know, they're not like they, they're not career minded, but... But, but still, still, yeah. But still, so I, I mean, the, the the fact is that they're playing in the venues. They get people are going in left, right, and center for the average. And also, it's about the audience. I find. I mean, where I grew up, I was quite lucky. Wolverhampton, a lot of bands played on their way up, but we had a very appreciative audience. Absolutely. When I moved to the south of the UK, London, Brighton, the audience is pretty much standing there going, "Come on, what have you got? I've I've seen five bands this week. Bring yeah, it, definitely." <laughs> and I mean, I think to your point about how like. Uh, U.S. bands seem fully formed going overseas. Like I said, it, this country is so big. If you're playing like Atlanta one night, then D.C. the next night, and then Philadelphia the night before, if you're doing a tour and you're playing every night, you're going to just get better faster, right? And in order, and and that philosophy I was saying earlier about how every night is a battle of the bands. If you employ that to these sort of grueling independent tours of the country you know, you very quickly get better, right? Like one thing, like the campaign did, when we went to England, we did 10 uh, shows in 11 days. And then we came back and then like a week, like a week later we played Boston. And then like the next month was the Rumble. We were like on fire. We were, it was like a a regimen of, I mean, it was like a, a militaristic regimen playing that much. So. If you if you just do that, like from the Atlantic to the Pacific and back again, well, by the time you get to England, you're you've already played like 50 shows and you're going to like blow everyone off the stage. 
at least like theoretically, assuming you have the songs. So, <laughs> um, well, okay. I mean, you guys won till Tuesday won. Our next, our next choice are a lo- another local band and a legendary local band. Uh, I'm, I'm cribbing from your own notes here. Legendary Boston hardcore band. Um, who, who have we got? Yeah, we've got 1986's winners, uh, Gang Green. Um, they sort of. <laughs> I mean, they're like a funny punk band. They're originally from like Braintree, Mass. Chris Doherty is their uh, singer and the guitar player. And it's, uh, again, uh, they, they sort of, they sort of took the philosophy of like, what if we did, um, what if we did Minor Threat, but instead of singing about abstinence, let's sing about doing all the drugs and all the drinking. And so it, it sort of became this, like, um, it, I mean, they, they were extremely successful, in, at least locally, that it then became like a subgenre of basically doing like punk drinking songs. I mean, like there's a, a huge uh, Irish uh, uh, contingent in Boston. And so we, we love our we love to drink and we love uh, our punk rock. And so in, in some ways, Gang Green is the uh, forefathers of all of that. Um, and so I, I never saw them, but again, I've certainly heard of them. There's, they, they were on a uh, very influential uh, compilation called This is Boston, Not L.A. And it was a, a sort of like sticking the flag on the map of saying like, damn it, our town and all of our like hardcore punk bands mean something. And the hell with you guys in California. And it was ridiculous because I'm sure nobody in California gave a flying shit about any of these bands, but, but for Boston, it seemed like a, a real, like, and, and you have to realize in 1986, that was like when the Celtics were a very, they were a force in the, in this town. And our, our biggest rivals are the, were the LA uh, Lakers magic and Kareem and all those guys. So, uh, we, you know, it, it was very territorial. That's a, that's a big thing with Boston is like territorial provincialism and, you know, like how we compare it to other towns. It's so ridiculous to even <laughs> say this, but it's true. Uh, I've all, sadly, sadly though, I've also got this thing in my head of, and I know that every real, what I think of as a Boston accent isn't a Boston accent. I've got this, this melange of, of, Ben Affleck in Goodwill Hunting meets Family Guy um, shouting at an at, at a Californian bear about Boston being great. That's the image well, I've got in my head. Family Guy takes place in Rhode Island, and that's like a little tiny state just south of Boston. I mean, it's it's like a postage stamp size. It's 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 okay. tiny, but um, yeah. I mean, it's funny for someone who calls Boston home. I don't have a Boston accent in the slightest. I use my R's, um, and uh, <laughs> but um, but it, it is really funny. We were watching um, we were watching Peaky Blinders the other day, and there's like a whole the accents are not the accents are not they, authentic. Well, I'm gonna let jump me tell in you here. right now when they have some guys from Boston, we're like, yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's sort of like a um, drunk a drunker Boston, yeah, Boston. A drunker Boston. JFK. Yeah, I guess awesome. I don't know. Uh, I, I will say that I'm, my wife is from Ireland. And um, I'm from Wolverhampton, and so Quibbin, yeah, she she's got used to my very specific local city accent, which is, I mean, we're talking half an hour's drive from where Peaky Blinders is is, is supposed to be set, and we were watching 
one episode, I don't know, season three, season four, and these two new characters turn up. And my wife just went, is that a Wolverhampton accent? And I have never been more proud in my life that she suddenly spotted this hyper-local difference between a bad fake Birmingham accent and a pretty accurate Wolverhampton one. Anyway, right. There you go. Before we dig Should we just do, let's gangrene. do some gangrene, shall we? So, I mean, listening to the choices, obviously, that we've been listening to, there's some classic Battle of the Bands type rock and, and punk. And obviously, we had the Dresden Dolls who were cabaret goth yeah. punk, I guess. I mean, this sounds like a a mishmash, weird, mix, eclectic thing going on. I mean, was it as random as it sounds? I mean, or was it just, there's a rock night, there's a, a funk night, or was it just, here's some pop, here's some jazz funk, here's some disco? I mean, probably in some ways it would have been a lot easier to adjudicate if it was like, hey, we're going to do four you know, jam bands or something. Although if you had a four jam band night, I'm sure people would probably hang themselves, but you'd probably still be there. <laughs> I mean, it might be still, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's still going, man. Get the hacky sack out. But um, yeah, so let's go on with Caven. And I mean, they were laughed out of the stage uh, when they were competing in it because I mean, nobody knew what to do with this like extreme metal. But the comedy is, is that, you know, of all people got them signed to RCA records uh, saying like, these guys are the greatest. And um, yeah, I mean, they're still going, they just put out a new record uh, like a few weeks ago and it's like completely slays. And they, uh, they, they do that 12 seconds to midnight, uh, those videos, they're funny as hell. And uh, I mean, but you wouldn't know they're funny when you listen to this uh, record, but, um, but yeah, I've always loved cave in. Uh, they're an institution. Uh, I know I keep using the word institution a lot, but uh uh, many, many great nights uh, seeing this band play. So uh, let's crank it up. I mean, I'm guessing as this is something that happened where you grew up and you were part of the scene, that you also knew shitloads of other people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And I mean, every year when they would be announcing like, okay, this is this year's Rumble class. We'd go like, oh, did you get in? And, you know, we'd, you know, tease people like, ah, ha ha, you're in the Rumble. But, you know, (laughs) at the same token, we were like probably a little jealous too. And so, you know, over the years, you know, so many, so many close friends, so many great bands. I mean, they didn't stand a chance. Uh, You know, I'm trying to, let me shout out some names, shall we? We'll go The Pills, Quick Fix. How about Garrison? We had uh, the damn personals. We had, I mean, it, it was just, there were so many, uh, you people recently, they, uh, they didn't do it, but. Uh, see, see, I think you can also, there's a lot, of, you can tell a place and a, a, a time by what the bands were called. So when I was what, going out in, 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 in the West Midlands in the UK, what, 91, maybe, let's say 91, um, my mate's bands who I, went to and thoroughly enjoyed, and also are probably going to get their only ever shout out on podcasts, were bands called Am I Mad? The Marmalade Galaxy. Yeah, the Marmalade Galaxy is a band name that could only have existed in 1991. Yeah. Uh, Speedball. Yeah, these are bands that you go, you, and you're basically watching it with mates. Yeah. It's an audi- audience full of mates with mates on yeah, stage. Yeah, and I mean, to sort of tie back earlier, you know, like Liz said, it, it felt like the World Cup. You know, you'd go and, you know, you'd be, cheering on your act your friend's band and 
you know, you'd be hoping and praying like, oh, can they get out of this round? Can they get out of this bit so that we can see them next <laughs> week? And um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, we, obviously we were extremely biased uh, in certain circumstances. That, like, <laughs> Did you ever boo? Did you ever boo when somebody beat your mates? Uh, not that I know of. I mean, I think... I think you could pretty much tell when you were watching it who was going to win, right? You know, it's sort of kind of like, like if we go back to the World Cup, you can look at the tables and go like, I mean, we're we're pretty, it's a pretty safe bet to say that, you know, these two gr- these two teams are going to get out of the group, right? So I, I, I think there was always that thinking like, yeah, I, they're, they, they'll probably they're probably not going to win, but they might win. I mean, you never know. I mean, there was definitely like, you know, the damn personals was, was won their mo- night, you, for instance. Was there a moment when you played yeah. the, the, that you heard one of the other acts and went, fuck, they're going to win? Or were you that, or were you like, no, we've got it? Uh, we were, How did we you were, feel when you we were? We were so cocky that in the, in the, sec- <laughs> in the, in the semifinals, we just before the last song, we said, Hey, check it out. We're going to be playing downstairs with a guy from the Foo Fighters next week. That's how confident we were. Uh, the comedy was, is that we actually lost <laughs> some other band one that night and we had to be wild carded into the finals. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we were disappointed and, you know, but I, I was congratulatory to the, to the act. They were called Scamper. They won. Um, some of our friends were not, they were kind of jerks about it, but you know, that's on them. Okay. So we're, we talked about watching friends bands. Um, the next one I'm assuming is one of your yeah, friends. This bands. is, uh, they're called thick shakes. They were old roommates of, um, well, Lindsay, the singer, she was an old roommate of mine. And, uh, I actually went through it and looked, uh, like lifetime, this house that we lived in, um, historic three Wadsworth. That's what we called it. Historic three Wadsworth. Um, all the bands that had ever lived at historic three Wadsworth, our full record in the rumble was two wins and four losses. And yeah, Whoa. I know. So, which, uh, you know, Hey, but one of those was, uh, one of those was winning the whole shebang. So, you know, like, let's not, uh, let's not get wildcarded. Well, Hashtag I mean, that was one of the losses was a wild card, <laughs> but, uh, but Lindsay's band thick shakes is with her husband, uh, Tim. And, um, they lost both their nights. So they, they, there was two of the other losses and the, and the third loss was Garrison, um, who was a, an emo band. Uh, they were on revelation records. I don't know if you guys know that, but. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, so, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, hopefully think shakes have had more airplay somewhere else. Um, and this one, I, the reason you're listening to this at home, dear listener is cause I went and bought it off the band camp. So, um, other reasons to, uh, support the show and also support the artists. So this is Thick Shakes and Deep Pockets. Um, so you talk, we've talked about bands that sort of had a good big following or, 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 or became cult heroes. Um, and some of those bands obviously were, were, were from Boston, but not every band from Boston or the surrounding region played this. You know, I mean, who else... Who else was there? Who else were the influences? Who were the big hitters? Did any of them ever pay attention to the rumble? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. Way? I do think it was like, 
a more of a a band you know bands like trying to establish themselves uh, an avenue for that i mean there were certainly other people who just became successful the more you know traditional ways of like you know networking their way in or you know just being fucking great um like so just to sort of like put in perspective here's like a, a small list of uh boston bands that had nothing to do with this uh but who were around and could theoretically have been in a rumble band um so here we go i've got pixies drop kick murphy's dinosaur jr new edition new kids on the block throwing muses Dirty Projectors, Tune Yards, Kill Switch Engage, Converge, Godsmack, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Megan Trainer, Extreme, Whoa. Extreme, <sighs> Buffalo Tom, Sebado, and of course the Folk Implosion, Galaxy 500, Karate, Guster, Paris. I mean, it, 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 you listen to that and you go like, wow, you know, the New England area has like a lot to offer, you know? You might go like, well, wait a minute, yeah, hold yeah, on. Thirty projectors—they're a—they're a you know Brooklyn band, and uh, yeah, that's true. But they started off in uh, Yale, so that would be New Haven, Connecticut. That's always a weird—that's always a weird thing I find. Um, at some point, there's going to be a very self-indulgent episode of of this podcast where where I make somebody interview me about music from my region very specifically and when i was looking at lists of bands i was like well they're from wolverhampton everyone knows they're from Wolverhampton. oh they formed after they left in london i can't claim them and you want to claim them you go oh but so and so is from wolverhampton so therefore i robert plants from my area so therefore i can have led no i can't have led zeppelin they're not a local band and so yeah there is this weird thing of they started and ownership just generally ownership are they ours are they not? I mean, I guess New York, a lot of people from New York don't give a shit. They're like, yeah, are they from New York? Then I don't care about Boston. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, in some places, like being from New York is either like, like oh, this is like a sign of, of accomplishment or like, oh, God, another band from Brooklyn. Like, who gives a shit, you know? <laughs> and that's a very specific thing when you say, oh, it's a band from Brooklyn. It's probably some indie band, you know, that's like very hyped. But um but uh, but yeah, I mean, to, but to your point, I mean, when I just rattle off, I mean, these are, I mean, the Boston area has always been like a. There's always been a turnout of 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 big bands. Let's put it that way. Maybe they're not like the world's. They're, they're not world beaters, but damn it, they're pretty damn close. So, oh, that's, that's, some of those there were. Well, I was counting. I think I've seen six. I think I can't remember which ones, but I was counting how many I'd seen live. And there was about six of them. Um, spoiler, Megan Trainer was not one of them. <laughs> uh, so who, who's last? Who's last? Oh, man. So, you know, it's funny when you, you said, oh, you want to you do this episode? And I'm like, yeah, totally. And when I was putting the stuff together, I realized that, like, I'm really bad at making mixtapes. <laughs> I mean, I start off, like, with, like, <laughs> all the hits. But by the end of it, it's just like, I think my interest wanes a bit. So I hemmed and hawed for these last handful ones. And at the end of the day, there was a, there, there was a, there was a, I can't remember which radio program it was. It was on six music about maybe 20 years ago. And they talked about how the most important song on an album was the second song on side two, because by then your interest is waning and it has to bring you back in. And I always found that was the trick of a mixtape, you know, don't, 
Don't do what you two do and put all your singles one, two, three. You know, spread them out through an album. Oh, really? Okay. See, because like when I've like assembled records that I've been part of, you know, you put your best one first, and then you put the the next best one as the last song on the first side, and then you and then you put okay. another winner at the stop. Excuse me, at the at the start of the second side, and then again you end on a high note because you want to have them keep coming back to that. So you want you want to have them. You want to hit them at the beginning, and then you want to leave them. Well, wow, that's a that's a winner. So, uh, so we're going to end with the Sheila Divine, and they were our 1999 winners in the uh, BCN Rumble. Uh, just a, I, I think this is just a great song. I think, you know, if a, a couple of other cards had flipped in their direction, they might have actually gotten bigger than they had become. I think. By every metric, they were a, a fairly successful act. Uh, certainly, the one we're going to listen to, "Hum," was a uh, college radio hit in town. Um, for some reason, they have like a following in Belgium. I have no idea how that happened, but apparently, whenever they reunite, they always do a show in Belgium, which seems crazy. But you know, you go where the money is. Um, so uh, yeah, let's. Uh, here it is. <laughs> Right, so we've gone through 10 songs, um, some winners, some losers, um, some others from, 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 from the rumble is what I'm going to sure. call it. Um, <laughs> I just like the sound of the rumble. It's, to me, it still sounds incredibly yeah, American. Yeah, I know. I um, mean, should we, should we say like BCN doesn't exist anymore and that like maybe about 12 years ago they flipped to a um, all sports talk radio? But I imagine they still use the words the rumble, no, they, right? They, but it has no, they don't have anything to do with it. It's like it's now independently owned. No, but as in as in now that they've moved to now it's a sports radio, I'm imagining there is still let's get ready rumble. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm sure. Yeah, so But I mean but if they're talking about it, they're not certainly not talking about any of these bands we're talking about. <laughs> um Brendan, thank you very much. It has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, also a really it's always a really nice to get a window into a scene that while I wasn't part of it, I could picture it because I experienced little things that were very similar. And I hope the audience did too. Um, if you're listening to this, thank you very much. Um, find out more about Brendan at brendanquigley.com mm-hmm. or brendanemmettquigley.com. Um, find out more about us at infrequency.co.uk or um, mixcloud.com slash temp fans uh theme music is by jonathan fisher and um yeah see you next time <laughs>